After weeks of political maneuvering and preparation, Xi Jinping was confirmed as president of China for a precedent-breaking third term after installing loyalists and picking off political rivals. This move has cemented him as possibly the most powerful Chinese leader since Mao Zedong, with no end in sight to his tenure as president. Which brings us to the question of what this means for China and the rest of the world, and how things may turn out. From Seton Hall University, this is The Global Current. I'm your host, Drew Starbuck. With me today are two fellow Seton Hall students. Covering the domestic situation today, our analyst today is Kieran Buzonson. Hi, Kieran. Hi, Drew. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. And focusing on the international aspect today is Aaron M. Hi, Aaron. Hi, Drew. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for coming on the show. All right, guys. I want to first start off with the background of the situation. And since this was a political event, this recent Congress, I want to get into how is China's government structured, first of all. And I'll turn to you first, Kieran, as the domestic analyst. Yeah, sure. So to familiarize kind of your average listener with, you know, structure of, of China, it's not a, it's not a federal system um, in the way that we have it here with a, with a bicameral legislature and three separate branches of government. It's obviously more centralized. It's a one-party state, just as the CCP, the Communist Chinese, or the Chinese Communist Party, apologies. Um, at the top, you have the president. Under him, you have the National People's Congress, which is kind of the equivalent of a legislative branch. Um, the People's Consultative Conference, and then several commissions, procuriates, um, courts, and councils. And then the Communist Party itself actually has its own structure and is a, almost like a second government within the country. Um, you have the General Secretary at the top, then the Secretariat, which is where the Politburo is, similar kind of to the Soviet style. And then you have the Central Committee and the National Party Congress, which is China-wide and has thousands of members. Mm -hmm. You mentioned like the Chinese Communist Party being sort of a shadow government within the government. Kieran, do you want to go into, like, where does the division between the Chinese Communist Party and the actual government of China begin? Or is there a division in any sort of way? I mean, so theoretically, the CCP and the government are not the one the same, that technically someone from a non-CCP party can go in, but they're just not, there just doesn't happen to be any other political parties, uh, practically speaking. You know, in, in a sense, it actually kind of reminds me of the way Iran's government is structured, where you have kind of the IRGC as this separate entity that also happens to run the country in mm -hmm. tandem with the civilian government. But in China, it's a much more intimate relationship. And the CCP and the Chinese government, you know, the, the, the president, the People's Congress, the various bureaus and courts are all essentially just run by the single party. Yep. And the People's Congress of China has a long history within the CCP, and it's just in general how to inaugurate new leaders and both set the tone for new eras of government. Would that be correct? Yeah, I mean, it's essentially the most public display of like high-level Chinese political maneuvering, agenda setting for you know their five-year plans, um, etc. Yep. I want to turn to you, Aaron, and if you can go at all into Xi's past as the president, and also just like the big event at this latest Congress, which is just Xi's re-election for his third term, and also his designation as leader for life. Yeah, so Xi Jinping was picked as the president of China in 2012. And during his presidency, he introduced the Chinese dream, which is the idea to rejuvenate the Chinese nation by increasing their economy, the standard of living, and also Chinese innovation so they don't have to rely too much of the West or other countries. However, as Xi's presidency progressed, the country's uh, started to move towards a totalitarian direction, and China's economy has not been growing as fast as Xi's predecessors. 
And this has to do mostly with the zero COVID that has been implemented since 2020. While the rest of the world continues to open up, China has maintained this zero COVID. And this in turn has slowed China's economy. And she has also favored a hardline approach towards the West and aggressive actions towards Taiwan and Hong Kong. As an example, China enforcing the national security law on Hong Kong. And also in a speech that Xi Jinping said, he said that the Taiwan issue must be resolved only by the Chinese people and no one else. Mm -hmm. And the another topic is the trade relations with Africa. Xi Jinping has uh, always wanted to have a greater relation with Africa to spread influence and money. You mentioned the zero COVID policy, Aaron. I think we'll try and get into more of the specifics of that later and what we mean by zero COVID. But I want to turn back to you, Kieran, for like the events of the Congress itself. Uh, we know what the big major star of the show was, but it said it's the 20th of this kind of Congress. Are these kind of Congresses like choreographed or they do they happen as it happens? So, I mean, I think it's important for everyone to know that everything in Chinese politics is highly choreographed. I mean, all of these moves, if it's going to be televised, if it's going to be on radio, are made in advance. It's all scripted. People are, like, where people are sitting, who they're sitting next to, if you're on the right side of someone versus on the left side of someone, all of that is, you know, essentially preordained by the CCP. Um, it's, it's choreographed kind of a bit like a ballet. So when you see some of the, you know, for example, obviously, like you're alluding to um, Hu Jintao's removal, right from the Congress. When you see things like that, which seem like a little bit like a public stunt and a bit shocking and kind of out of the blue, that was likely planned long in advance. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty obvious that these are choreographed to a certain extent and it was possibly G making a show of things that this is him cementing his power, especially on national television to both the domestic audience and to the international audience at large, correct? Yes, I mean, you know, as it pertains to Hu Jintao in particular, his removal by his you know, alleged aides was right after international TV cameras began to roll. Um, this was intentional. He wanted every single you know, uh, major news network, French news networks, British, German, American, he wanted every single major international news agency to see this and see it live. Mm -hmm. yeah. And not just him removing a political rival potentially, but also him ensuring himself as leader for life of China and things like that. Yes, I mean, you know, realistically what he's doing is um, the, the faction that Hu Jintao represents, which is you know, kind of from this older history of, of liberalization in China, which dates back to Deng Xiaoping, you know, they've effectively been crushed since Xi came to power in the early 2010s. Um, this is really just him quite literally putting the last nail in the coffin of that faction, which is generally less hawkish and seeks a bit more of a rapprochement of the West, though, you know, they don't divert too much from, from general CCP orthodoxy. But you also mentioned, Kieran, that there's like major issues that are brought up during those Congresses or what China will be tackling next. What were the, like the major issues at the moment with this current Congress? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, Aaron mentioned one of them, that's zero COVID. So the China's policy of, you know, kind of early 2020-esque um, lockdowns, restrictions, quarantines, et cetera, um, and penalties for, for avoiding those. And then the general economy, right? So you have economic turmoil, you have the currency stability issue, the Chinese central bank yeah. moving around with depreciation um, and, and lowering prime rates. And then, of course, you have the real estate market. Part of that has to do with COVID. Part of that has to do with the general long-term economic planning in China um, of overbuilding in some places and underbuilding in others. Um, but those were really the main issues. Of course, you also have foreign policy issues that Aaron alluded to, like Taiwan and their Belt and Road Initiative, which they've been working on for 
you know, the past decade or so. Yep. And that's something I want to dive into you both, because you both have mentioned both, like, the Belt and Road Initiative and Zero COVID. The economic slowdown of China, which has presented probably the greatest issue that Xi is going to have to continue to deal with during his third term or however long he stays in power. As Aaron mentioned earlier, talking about the Chinese dream, do you believe that the Chinese dream is failing or is the Chinese economy momentarily experience a hiccup? I mean, I think a lot of these issues are going to take a long time to resolve. You have some massive fundamental structural problems that have been part of the Chinese economic system for, I don't know, the last four four decades or longer, going back to kind of the Cultural Revolution in Mao's time. Um, I mean, more recently, one of the large issues that you have is the demographic issue, which has essentially been set up by China's longtime one-child one policy. Um, so you have a big skew in their population curve age-wise. You also have the gradual transition of China into a consumer economy, all the United States. You know, their heavy industry has been declining in recent years, and it's been exported to Southeast Asia, Africa, even South, South America, all places that they're investing in, nonetheless. But still, their domestic economy is going under a huge shift, and you also have, you know, honestly, the cards falling in on some major real estate companies, which represent, you know, 30% of the Chinese Communist Party and, and China's GDP. Mm-hmm. I want to clarify some things with just the zero COVID policy, because you both have mentioned it. You mentioned, like, lockdowns and restrictions and of like both similar to very early on in the pandemic, such as mass lockdowns, mandatory quarantine, and punishments for those who violate this. And it's, I think it's worthy to mention that China's been doing this not just in like 2020 when the it hit the United States, mm-hmm. but even before then in like the winter of 2019 when originally the COVID-19 pandemic started. Yes, I mean, realistically, this is just a continuation of, of policy. This is, you know, nothing's really changed for them since... January or February of 2020, you know, the, the lockdowns that they're engaging in are kind of made worse by that size and sophistication of their security apparatus. You have lockdowns in massive cities like Chengdu, uh, Shanghai, um, which affects literally tens of millions of people. Um, they have, you know, and they're able to track everyone's phones, so you are punished if you leave your apartment complex. Food is delivered to apartment complexes and house doors. You're not allowed to leave drive, leave these cities. I mean, you know, pretty dystopian stuff that we in the West haven't really seen on that sort of scale in in two years. I want to turn to you, Aaron, because you mentioned the Belt and Road Initiative, in particular, Xi pursuing more economic connections within the continent of Africa. Do you want to go more into that? Yeah, so since Xi was in power, China has been securing relationships with different African nations with the Belt and Road Initiative. However, recently, because of the weakening Chinese economy, China will now focus more on its domestic affairs than Africa. However, this does not mean that relationships will be deteriorating. Relationships between Africa and China have still, are still holding strong. And Western countries are afraid of that because China's spread its influence in Africa. And it can really hurt Africa's development in terms of democracy. However, Africa is also afraid with the recent trade sanctions between the U.S. and China. And this is because of, especially in the tech sector, uh, China produces a lot of Africa's phones, for example, because China dominates the phone market in Nigeria with more than 200 million cell connections. And China relies on Africa for its raw materials it uses to create things like iPhones as well as semiconductors. And if the West is putting sanctions on the Chinese tech market, China's economy is going to suffer as well as these different African countries. However, despite all these hiccups, the overall relationship between Africa and China still holds strong. I want to address this question, and you both can answer this, of 
You mentioned about the economic struggles that China's facing, whether that be American sanctions on the China's tech industry, their faltering real estate market, and the central bank. Do you see a future revival of economic fortunes? Bearing in mind that, of course, Xi Jinping has shown no indication that he's going to change his policies, whether that be zero COVID or more state control of the market. I mean, I think it's hard to tell. If they continue with zero COVID for another year, like, I, I think all bets are off in terms of what we can expect. The real estate problem is significant. Not only did I, you know, as I mentioned, the real estate market composes about 30% of Chinese GDP, but you also had the second largest real estate developer in China collapse under $300 billion of debt last year um, with Evergrande that was bailed out by the Chinese government. Um, you have thousands and thousands of unfinished construction projects, which people are complaining about having to pay mortgages on before they're even habitable. Um, in other cities, you actually have way more housing than is needed. And you have all these empty buildings that are soaking up utilities and power that literally just cannot be used. The other problem with the Chinese economy long term is, like I said, they have a demographic cliff that they are staring down. I mean, there's going to be a massive contraction in their population um, as a result of zero COVID in a few decades time. You know, and how they're going to handle that, what industries are going to have to cope with that, that drastic drawdown in manpower, um, how they're going to cope with that as they simultaneously transition into a consumer economy is going to be, you know, a bit of a nightmare for them to handle. You know, I mean, China right now is facing one of its worst recessions in, in, in decades. You know, their, their projected GDP growth, the Chinese Communist Party's target was supposed to be about 5.5%, and predictions keep going down and down and down, all the way down to 2.7% at the moment. It could still go lower for the rest of Q4. So I don't think there's a way to know, but there's some, some serious trouble. I want to turn to another important issue that you mentioned earlier, and I think the world is paying attention to, Aaron, and as in the One China issue, and back to your statement in particular to Xi Jinping saying that the Taiwan issue is something that the Chinese people must solve alone. What is Taiwan's reaction to the extension of tenure for Xi Jinping? Yeah, so ever since the Republic of China government fled to Taiwan in 1949, Taiwan has had a history of political, social, and economic changes. It went from being a right-wing authoritarian country that was under martial law to being a thriving and prosperous democracy today. And since Xi Jinping has been moving China towards this more authoritarian future, Taiwan and China couldn't be more different politically today. More and more people in Taiwan consider themselves to be Taiwanese. I believe around 64% of people in 2020 consider themselves to be Taiwanese. And this is a huge jump from 1995, where only 25% of people called themselves Taiwanese. And this increase of Taiwanese nationalism was increased when Tsai Ing-wen came to power in 2016. And it's only been enhanced with the enforcement of the national security law in Hong Kong, which has scared many Taiwanese into thinking, would this be Taiwan's future? And also the recent war between Russia and Ukraine. So with Xi's third term, we can see a lot more pressure coming to Taiwan economically, diplomatically, and militarily. For example, China started to ban different Taiwanese goods, especially fruit like pineapples, wax apples, and pomelo. And Taiwan is starting to prepare for a future war they will have with the Chinese. Example being a new fighter jet aircraft has been stationed in the city of Hualien, which is in western Taiwan. And it's been, they built a cave storage area that can store 200 jets and can take action whenever. 
Yet, despite all these threats that they that Taiwan has received, the Taiwanese overall has been going on with their daily lives as usual. They don't they don't really try to to let the idea of a Chinese invasion invade their minds. Um, you mentioned both the increasing Taiwan nationalism. It seems that both Taiwan and China are taking more hawkish stances towards each other when considering like what used to be the previous status quo. That's right. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I want to come back to you, Aaron, on like the effect on China's foreign relations. You already talked about Africa a little bit earlier with the Belt and Road Initiative. <laughs> First, I'd like to go to Europe and the EU and what's their reaction or how the future of their relationship with China under Xi Jinping, mm-hmm. how that may turn out. Yeah, so ever since Xi and China started to have a more aggressive economic and political posture, the EU has been slowly turning away from China, and the EU has strengthened trade with other countries such as their ally, the United States. However, this does not mean that the EU will completely decouple with the Chinese market. The EU really wants to negotiate with China to make sure that the European market doesn't become overly dependent or reliant on the Chinese market. And we could see that they made a big mistake with that when it comes to Russia. This is due because of the Russia-Ukraine war. The European Union relies heavily on Russia, especially when it comes to energy and natural gas. I believe in according to data in 2021, more than a third of Europe's energy comes from natural gas and around half of the natural gas that Europe has comes from Russia. And this has caused a major problem for different European nations uh, when the Russian invasion of Ukraine started. The EU has become so dependent on Russian gas that now Russia is using natural gas as a leverage for the sanctions that the EU placed because of the invasion. So the EU really wants to be careful when it comes to China because China also has a history of economic consequences in the past. As you can see some in some parts with the Belt and Road Initiative and China's relationships with other parts of the world. You as well, Aaron, I think I also want to go back to the obvious effect of like the potential political and geopolitical rivalry between the United States and China. How do you think the United States is reacting to the Xi Jinping's adoption of the status for leader for life? And how will this affect both the United States and China's increasingly competing visions for the world. Yeah, so ever since the United States, the United States have had a a foreign policy that's been very tough on China since the Trump administration. And it's only been continuing through the Biden administration. For example, um, Nancy Pelosi flying to Taiwan during the summer is the first time a House speaker flew to Taiwan for a long time. And China was furious and conducted different military exercises around the island which then ended four days later. An example, uh, another example is the U.S. set different rules against Chinese companies who want to buy advanced American-made chips. The U.S. said it would not only prevent China from getting advanced chips from America, but also advanced technology they use to make these different chips. And in reality, China cannot make these super advanced semiconductors and chips like Taiwan, Korea, or the United States. Sorry to interrupt you, Aaron, but I think that's an important point you brought up of like the most advanced semiconductors and computer chips that we're talking about here are made in Taiwan, Korea, the United States, but particularly in Taiwan, which I think comes back to the importance of Taiwan and a possible Chinese invasion later on and what effect that could have on the technology market globally. Um, sorry, I just didn't want to interrupt you. I just thought no. that was an important point. <laughs> nah, you go. You go. Yeah, so really the U.S. hasn't reached Cold War level status with 
China yet, but it is, you could say, getting closer because of the de deteriorating relationship. Uh, however, despite the decoupling and deteriorating relationship, uh, the United States and China know that their relationship is probably the most important in the world because they are the first and second biggest economies. So really, the United States and China, they must balance their actions to not make the other side mad, for example, right? With Taiwan, the U.S. is determined to help Taiwan if needed. However, the U.S. is still keeping this one-China policy and strategic ambiguity on Taiwan to not make China mad. At the same time, China continues to put their, that their claim is that Taiwan belongs to China and continue to make threats to Taiwan. However, they, do not, they are still um, nervous about an invasion because they're nervous that the U.S. would then come to Taiwan's aid. However, the U.S.-China US rivalry will most likely continue with Xi's third term. I also want to draw attention to, you mentioned we've focused on Taiwan, but also China's relationship and Xi's extended tenure now with other nations in Asia and how that will affect their relationship. I'm thinking of particularly natural geopolitical foes of China, such as Japan, but also geopolitical allies, such as North Korea. Do you want to get into any of that, Kieran? Yeah, I mean, just to briefly actually finish commenting on the Taiwan thing, I mean, part of the problem is domestically within China, you actually have a lot of, you have a lot of popular support by average people um, for their policy, you know, the more hawkish policy toward Taiwan. And then you also see with the, you know, Hu Jintao's faction kind of being crushed, um, any, like, comparatively dovish, and I don't mean, like, really dovish, but compared to the current hardliners dovish, intellectual space within China regarding Taiwan has kind of evaporated. You know, they, they, they haven't left themselves <laughs> much, much latitude to move. When it comes to North Korea, you know, China is kind of the only reason that they have nuclear weapons or an economy at all. Um, they're the, literally the only country that it trades, trades with, and as long as they do, North Korea will not really seek a, you know, considerable rapprochement with the South or the U.S., and, you know, it continues, they continue to kind of stifle and, and kick the, the can down with, with um, down the road with, you know, larger, like, major dialogues, such as the six-party talks, multilateral you know, efforts to kind of mitigate the <laughs> tension on the Korean Peninsula. So, yeah. On the side of Japan, is there anything you want to add with their view on Xi's extended tenure, Aaron? Yeah, so Japan has always played a crucial role in the defense in Asia, especially to Taiwan since it is a major country in the first island chain, which is the chain that connects Japan, Taiwan, and the Philippines. And, it, and these countries basically surround China. And so losing Taiwan to a Chinese invasion means that Japan's national security could be at risk. And, you know, Japan and China have always had a long uh, history of fighting and feuds, especially under Shinzo Abe, who was the previous Japanese prime minister. Uh, he was considered a Japanese nationalist and has, had, and has said a bunch of anti-Chinese rhetoric. However, the current prime minister, Fumio Kishida, he wants to take a different approach when it comes to um, dealing with China. He wants to have a more calm approach and wants to try to balance from ha with having good relationships uh, in terms of economy with China. And however, at the same time, he wants to have a greater military alliance with the United States. And again, this is due to because of China's growing influence in Asia. When, you know, when Kishida came into office, he tried to 
calm the tensions between the two countries, for example. Kishida assigned uh, Yoshimasa Hayaki as the foreign minister of Japan, and he is considered to be pro-China. And Japan and China's relationships is very important too, since they are the second and third largest economy. But nonetheless, due to China's growing influence, con Japan continues to build up its military and creates different uh, alliances with Western nations, such as the United States, Taiwan, even though Taiwan's not very Western, but <laughs> um, Australia. And for example, Australia actually recently signed a security agreement to counter China's influence in the region. The two leaders sat, uh, said that the pact aims to deter aggression and behavior that undermines international rules and norms. Yeah. Well, we only have a short bit of time left, guys, so I just want to summarize everything that we've come through earlier in the episode and just say and ask, what can we expect to see from Xi's leadership going forward, and how will this affect the rest of the world? I'll come to you first, Kieran. Yeah, I mean, just very briefly, I think what you're going to see is more of the trajectory that, trajectory that they're already on. Um, there's a commitment to ideology and not so much reality. You can see that with zero COVID. You can see that with their economic actions domestically um, and abroad and with Taiwan, which some of which are kind of counterproductive to overall goals, but fulfills the ideology. So you have anything to add on to that, Aaron? Yeah. So, I mean, um, if China continues to have this kind of aggressive foreign policy, I mean, China's eventually going to lose friends and economic benefits that it's solely relied on for many years now. And it's overall not really a good environment if, or not a good practice if you continue to make enemies and not to create bonds. Well, this has been a great discussion. Kieran, Aaron, thank you so much for joining us on this very important topic. Thanks for having us, Drew. Thank you. Joining me now to round out some other headlines this week is our news briefer, Yinka Akindebe. Hey, Yinka. Hey. Thank you for coming on the show. So what headlines do you have for us this week? North Korea keeps up its missile barrage with launch of ICBM. Ethiopia peace deal hailed as a new dawn. And South Korea crowd surge. Some important stories to cover. Let's start with the recent missile launches in the Korean Peninsula. So... On November 3rd, North Korea launched missiles around South Korean and Japanese territory. This is one of many missiles in ICBM tests since 2022. The missile launch was a North Korean government's way of trying to assert itself as a nuclear power. In retaliation to North Korea's missile launch that the U.S. South Korean aerial military exercises have been extended to step up their defense. A tense and still developing situation. And you mentioned a new agreement in Ethiopia? Yeah, so the peace talks in Ethiopia regarding its two-year civil war with the Tigray People's Liberation Front Party has been signed on November 3rd. Their permanent secession of hostilities includes the disarmament of heavy and light weapons of the Tigray military and an interim administration in the Tigray region headed by Ethiopian security forces. Many concerns and difficulties still lie still lie ahead in the implementation of the secession of hostilities, but it is a step in the right direction to ensure future peace and unity within the country. And hopefully more positive steps will be taken to ensure peace remains. And you mentioned South Korea? So over the past Halloween weekend, the South Korean government has reported about 150 deaths of young adults and many more injured due to a crowd surge occurring in a narrow alleyway. A lively and popular district in South Korea, Itaewon, 
was met with more than usual numbers on October 29th to partake in Halloween festivities. The immense amount of people and the lack of police presence resulted in clogged streets with no space to move and in some cases breathe. Thank you so much for coming on, Yinka. Thank you. Now that is all the time we have for today. Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates on upcoming shows. The show would not have been possible without our dedicated crew, executive producer Jasmine DeLeon, associate producers Eric Bunce and Hamza Khan, technical producers Andrew Okuli and Bobby Kyle, and of course, your host, Drew Starbuck. The Global Current is brought to you by Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time, thank you.